sports and very specifically football and very, very specifically the NFL is really carrying the entire linear industry. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, January 31st. Today, I'm joined by Dylan Byers to talk about the behemoth TV ratings for the NFL playoffs and what they say about the state of linear television. And later, Eric Gardner joins Ben to discuss a surprising update from the Fox News defamation saga. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Welcome to The Powers That Be. We have hired John Arand at Puck to cover the business of sports, but you know, until then, Dylan Byers and I are going to hold it down on this topic because we want to talk about the monster NFL playoff ratings. I mean, Dylan, welcome to the show. I feel like the Bills-Chiefs game a week prior was mind-blowing, 50 million viewers. Uh, the primetime NFC title game between the San Francisco 49ers and the Detroit Lions, in which the Niners came from behind <laughs> and won, averaged roughly 57 million viewers for Fox, uh, and it peaked at almost 59 million viewers late in the game when the Niners were coming back, led by Iowa man Brock Purdy, Mr. Irrelevant. You know, we were chatting about what to talk about on this podcast, and we were like, I have some thoughts on NFL ratings. (laughs) So tell me, my friend, what are your thoughts about these just huge, huge blowout numbers? At a time, by the way, we should say, when people are tuning out traditional linear television, the NFL is the the only thing and the main thing that is proving an, an exception yeah. to that rule. Yeah, well, hi, Peter. And first of all, uh, a warm, warm welcome to our man, Rond, now. Uh, if anyone listening has not yet signed up for his email, The Varsity, I highly recommend you do so now uh, so you can get in on the ground floor. My initial take on this, which is sort of the conventional wisdom that we always have about sports, is, first of all, like, holy shit, these numbers are huge. And then secondly, that sports, and very specifically football, and very, very specifically the NFL, is really carrying the entire linear industry. This isn't my hot take alone. One Mm -hmm. benefit of this job is, you know, various wiser than myself media executives sort of are in my ear pointing me to certain things I should be looking at. So credit to them anonymously. But the the more nuanced version of that is that when you see numbers like this, in addition to highlighting the power of the NFL, it also highlights just how weak the rest of the television industry is. Mm -hmm. And so you think about like, whatever are sort of thought of as the most popular shows on television, right? You're like Abbott Elementary, you know, type or Big Bang Theory type mm-hmm. shows. We've gotten to a point where viewership for those is so low that they, 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 they first of all, they get really, really happy if they get something like, you know, short of a million viewers. And then they now sort of extend their viewership totals across the span of like a week 
or several weeks in order to sort of take in all the people who either stream it or record it on DVR or whatever. And even those numbers are extraordinarily paltry compared to what the NFL is doing. And so, you know, for me, I think a couple things. I think one, if you know that there are there is something out there like football that can get 50, 60 million, I mean, you know, I, I think these numbers are going to continue to go up, people to tune in for an event, and then the rest of your content slate is bringing in hundreds of thousands of viewers, or maybe a million or so viewers. That highlights, I think, a real a real weakness in the product, especially compared to, you know, whatever's available to people on streaming, on Netflix, uh-huh. on Amazon, Apple, whatever. And so... I think this is uh, something that is a short-term victory for the linear television industry because it's like, oh, great, look at what we've got. And by the way, these legacy brands like CBS and Fox and ESPN have these rights you know, for almost the next decade. But if football really has this sort of monopoly on American attention, at least live, it suggests to me that by the time those rights deals come back up, the Amazons and even the Apples of the world are going to want them a lot more. And these legacy brands are probably going to find themselves increasingly priced out of this business, just given how high those costs are going to be. And so I see this as an extraordinary win for football and a momentary win for linear. But in the long term, I think this highlights a a deeper underlying weakness to the entire linear structure. I think Sportico produced this graphic. Let me see if I can find it from a few weeks ago that kind of went viral on Twitter based on Nielsen data. Yeah, here it is. 93 of the top 100 most watched US TV broadcasts of 2023 were football. With the exception of three of those football games, they were all NFL, then three college football games, and then the Academy Awards, the Thanksgiving Day Parade, the Super Bowl lead out show <laughs> or lead in <laughs> right. show. Um, and then political programming is listed here. I assume that's an election night. Um, nothing in here is like Yellowstone or Abbott Elementary or CSI, whatever. And on top of that, nothing in here is NBA. Nothing in here is Major League Baseball. Uh, you know, nothing in here is college basketball. It's It's NFL slightly college football and then everything else it's pretty wild yeah and yet you know it's wild and the other thing you know because so, some i i feel the need to sort of i think this is something you and i and everyone at puck sort of inherently understands certainly our colleagues in this sort of like broader media media ecosystem understand it i don't think the average american understands it and sometimes i get people i get this pushback from people which is like well the olympics do very well and uh, the world cup does very well mm-hmm. and you know this then it's like what football has, which is keeping the linear business alive, is it has the consistency of being every fall through January and being like an event on Thursdays, Sundays, Mondays that the nation effectively rallies around. If you were to take that away, the the other stuff that we talk about that might rate well is not nearly so consistent. And so... Mm-hmm. If that consistency buoyed by like, you know, ESPN talking about football in February and March and April and May, like that is what is keeping this business alive. And I just I just it's like when you pull that out and when the day comes that 
you know, Jeff Bezos does decide, like, actually, I would like all of this to myself. Um, it is going to be <laughs> it's going to be very hard for the rest of the industry to sustain itself. The highest rated non-sports program of 2023 was uh, an episode of 60 Minutes that came in at number 136. The lone scripted show uh, was Yellowstone, which was just short of the top 200 rankings. And that averaged 6.83 million viewers, by the way, which is monster still for linear TV, but everything above it is just football, 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 football. Dylan, are you of the conspiratorial mind that uh, Taylor Swift is a plant uh, and and the NFL is scripted (laughs) and that's why so many people tuned into this game the other night? (laughs) (laughs) No, I love, I do, I do enjoy all of the conspiracy theories. I also am really just at where this, there's a bridge to politics here, the sort of uh, right wing freak out over over Taylor Swift and the NFL right now, um, presumably because they're fearing her eventual endorsement of Biden. No, I think that chances are, again, just to go back to the ratings, there's a pretty good chance that if you're talking about an American, you're talking about a football fan. <laughs> and yeah, she might yeah. just happen to be, she might just happen to be a football fan. But like, look, I, I will concede. I am not in the Taylor Swift demo and I don't really I I don't need the cutaways to her. But part of the conversation that we always have about television and about the death of linear television, we're really engaging in a sort of conversation about nostalgia, which is like, oh, you know, people I miss the days of Walter Cronkite. I miss the days when everyone watched like the MASH series finale, you know, like what happened to the shared narrative? What happened to a common sense of identity? And and did media used to provide that for America? And we actually still have that in a way. I know I know not everyone out there is watching football, but by and large, like if you're drawing in 50, 60 million viewers and people are talking about what's going on on the field and if Taylor Swift is a part of it and there's all this sort of theater around it, like, I don't know. Great. There, there, there's very little that we as Americans all feel like we have in common anymore. So I'm not mad. I'm not mad at a, a shared narrative in, a, in an increasingly sort of like compartmentalized and nicheified media landscape. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. Consider me pro sports when it comes to that. Just a couple more quick facts and then I'll let you go. The cheapest ticket listings for the Super Bowl in Las Vegas right now uh, are around $7,000. And that goes up to like almost $9,000 with fees like on SeatGeek. Uh-huh. Um, so these are the most <laughs> expensive uh, Super Bowl tickets ever so far. I remember, I, I mean, living in Los Angeles, I wanted to go to SoFi to see the Bengals play in the Super Bowl and the nosebleeds at SoFi were, you know, 6,000, 7,000. And I thought the Super Bowl in LA uh, with the Rams and Joe Burrow would be the most expensive Super Bowl ever just because it's LA and all the rich people are out. Uh, This is going to be the most expensive Super Bowl ever in terms of tickets. And I should also say it might be the most expensive Super Bowl ever in terms of advertising. Uh, I saw some article earlier today that a spot is going for $7 million a pop for a 30-second spot. So um, get ready for those commercials. Well, and then on top of that, just the Vegas factor, like – what at some point in the week following the Super Bowl, someone is going to figure out a rough estimate of just how much money was bet, <laughs> you know, during <laughs> from like from like kickoff to the end of the game, and that and that too will probably be a staggering number. 
Dylan, thanks so much for your insights. Uh, and until we have John on the pod, uh, you, know, you and I will hold down the sports talk happily, happily as always. Thank you so much. Thank you, Peter. When we come back, Eric Gardner is here to talk about the Fox News defamation story. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy here with Eric Gardner. Eric, I hadn't been following the Smartmatic lawsuit against Fox News that closely. This is sort of the sister case of the Dominion defamation suit that we all know and love. This cost uh, Fox $787 million to settle last year. There's been a couple big developments, uh, some good news and some bad news for both parties. So what is the latest that you are hearing in this trial? Sure. Well, uh, you know, interestingly enough, the Smartmatic case was filed uh, before the Dominion case, but, you know, jurisprudence in New York is really, really slow. And so this one's ticketed for a trial in uh, next year at the earliest, maybe even longer than that, because everything that, that gets decided in New York goes on appeal. But uh, this week we had a couple of decisions, one in favor of each side. On uh, Fox News's side, uh, the judge is allowing a counterclaim that basically alleges that this that the complaint's allegation of $2.6 billion worth of damages was frivolous and designed to chill its free speech. Enormous amount like that uh, is really just intended to you know generate headlines and chill uh, its reporting. So uh, Fox News gets to go move forward on that, and if uh, Smartmatic can't substantiate um, I guess it's its claim. Smartmatic could be end up paying Fox News's legal costs in the in, which is no small thing. Uh, I, I'm sure that in this case is millions of dollars worth of worth of legal fees. And then the other one, the other side, uh, a ruling for Smartmatic is that uh, Smartmatic is being allowed to take on Fox Corporation, Fox News's parent company. Uh, previously, the uh, the uh, judge rejected that. The judge said uh, that there wasn't enough uh, allegations directed toward Fox Corp's employees. An appeals court said that, and then uh, uh, Smartmatic came back and amended their complaint to discuss all the different ways that, that Rupert and uh, Lachlan Murdoch exert their influence on Fox News's editorial. And the judge looked at those new allegations and said that's sufficient and, and will allow uh, Smartmatic to move forward against Fox Corp. Okay, well, let's quickly get into some of the details on, on both of those points, because this seems like a major differentiation from the Dominion suit. First of all, with, with the anti-slap claim, that, that's not something that we had with Dominion. What's the difference between these two cases that it was allowed to proceed here? Is it just like the size of the damages they're claiming are so extraordinary? Uh, I guess that's part of it. You know, sometimes judges in different uh, jurisdictions come to different conclusions. Fox News certainly tried to bring an anti-slap claim down in Delaware based on New York law. Uh, and the judge there, you know, said, no, uh, you can't go forward on that. Here, they're being allowed to do that. The judge uh, looked at, at it all differently, looked at, at it less as about the substantiality of the, the claims itself, but rather about the, the damages alleged and, and sort of merit to the argument that, that maybe uh, Smartmatic picked this you know incredibly high $2.6 billion number without real tethering to you know lost profits or the diminished net value of its company and so you know uh, decided to let fox news 
try that. Uh, it's it's interesting. The, the uh, anti-slap statute from New York is pretty young. It's it was uh, amended a few years ago, and there's only been a few cases where where it's actually been tested. So so this is will be one of the first. What do you make of uh, the judge giving Smartmatic the, the green light to sue Fox Corporation, the the parent company? of Fox News. Does that sort of increase the ceiling in terms of how much they're asking for it or is it just spread around the potential financial pain from, you know, one balance sheet to the other? Like, what is the sort of strategy there? Absolutely. You know, and that is similar to what happened in the Dominion case where where down in Delaware, the judge did allow uh, Dominion to go after Fox Corp. Now the same thing goes for Smartmatic too. And I think it's, it's you know, it's both important and maybe not so important. It's important. I mean, Fox Corp is obviously the deeper pocketed company. They probably have an insurance, umbrella insurance uh, policy that, that has hundreds of millions of dollars in it. So if there is any thought about a settlement, uh, this might aid that towards some big settlement cost. But uh, in, in the end of the day, it's not going to really change the nature of the case. It's still going to be a, a case about the the spread of lies about the 2020 election and what was known. Maybe there'll be some more discussion at trial about the Murdoch's influence. They'll probably have to get on the witness stand. Um, their depositions are, are, are certainly needed now. And so so really, uh, I, I'm not too shocked about this. I, the Smartmatic certainly needed to do a better job in its, its initial pleadings about uh, what was alleged about Fox Corp. And now that they've done it, the judge is saying, good job, you can go forward. Yeah, I have to imagine that neither uh, Lachlan nor Rupert Murdoch wants to give depositions in this case. And maybe that's something that would push them in the direction of settling if there's a uh, viable alternative there. But Eric, speaking of defamation, I also wanted to get your quick reaction to the E. Jean Carroll rape defamation verdict. Uh, This is where Carol, for for people who have not been paying attention, she was just very recently awarded $83 million in her suit against Trump for continuing to defame her even after, um, this was after a separate jury had already found uh, him liable for $5 million in damages for how he was talking about her after he was found liable for sexual assault. What is next in this case? Is Trump going to appeal this somehow? I mean, as long as he can make the bond, uh, he certainly will, uh, you know, appeal it. He tried to appeal it beforehand. This uh, the second trial was specifically about statements that he had made while he was president. The first trial had to do with statements that he made after he was president. And, uh, you know, this second trial happened after a lengthy appellate process where Trump tried to say that whatever he did as president, he was immune from. And the and the appeals court kind of, you know, uh, shrugged off that, that, and eventually he had to face the second trial. And at the second trial, obviously, Eugene Carroll's uh, attorney, Roberta Kaplan, really made the point to the to the jury, you know, this guy continues to defame my clients. You need to send him a big message. And Trump himself wasn't allowed to re-argue the fact that that there was any, you know, sexual assault that, that occurred. So I imagine that he wants to go to a, an appeals court basically saying that the judge muzzled him, that he should have been allowed uh, that, def- that defense. I also think that there might be an interesting issue with regard to damages, it was Trump's contention that you know even if she uh, suffered you know some reputational damage among right wing audiences, that she benefited 
among a left-wing audiences that that basically her reputation was enhanced for going against Trump and uh, and they wanted to give the, the jury this instruction that basically the jury should weigh the net damages, you know, basically all the bad stuff, subtract all the uh, all the good stuff and then come to a verdict. The judge and jury, you know, ended up not doing that. They basically just said, you know, what's the rep- reputational damage here? What's the, the, the cost to repair her reputation? Then multiply that by a certain figure to come up with uh, punitive da- damages to deter uh, Trump from doing doing this ever again. And that's how you got this huge, big uh, verdict. Uh, You know, the other thing I'd say about this whole situation, which I find fascinating, is that, you know, this trial was was basically Roberta Kaplan's dream because, you know, Trump was not able to contest that he actually had a, a sexual assault. Now, if you think back to the Johnny Depp case, she actually tried the same thing. At the time, she was representing Amber Heard, and the UK court had had come up with this decision that basically, you know, said that Johnny Depp was an, an abuser. And the argument at the time was, uh, well, the UK court has already decided that that he's an abuser. We've already went through one trial. We shouldn't have to do this a second time. And, and the court basically said, no, that's what happened in the UK. We have a different procedure here. And so there was a whole new contest based on on the facts and everything like that. So Roberta Kaplan didn't get what she wanted there, but she was able in this Trump situation to get what she wanted there. And I believe that that would probably be one of the big issues that would get to an appeals court. Eric, I saw just before uh, you and I hopped on here that Trump's lawyer has been insinuating that uh, Carol's lawyer, Roberta Kaplan, had a sort of inappropriate, undisclosed mentor-mentee relationship with Judge Lewis Kaplan. There's no actual familial relationship there, but they did overlap at Paul Weiss like more than two decades ago. Roberta Kaplan has said that they barely overlapped and they never worked together. But do you think there is anything there whatsoever in terms of grounds for an appeal or, or or is this not going anywhere? You know, I read uh, Roberta Kaplan's uh, letter to the judge in response to this new thing that has has come out about this, you know, undisclosed conflict. And if it's really true that they barely spoke to each other, um, that, you know, there's there's no interaction, I I wouldn't you know, put too much into this. I think that it will be quickly rejected and I'm not even sure that it will become an appellate issue. Sure, you know, Trump is going to complain about, you know, any judge that, that you know, hands him a bad uh, outcome, but I'm not sure I necessarily see that much of an appellate uh, issue on this one. Well, we'll see what happens with this case. Obviously, 83 million, a huge amount of money on top of the 5 million. And uh, we're also waiting to hear what's about to happen in the case brought by Letitia James around fraud at the Trump organization, which could be another uh, multi-hundred million dollar verdict. So, Eric, we'll, we'll have you back on uh, ASAP to discuss all that as it unfolds. Yeah, a few hundred million here and a few hundred million there. So it adds up. Yeah, things are getting expensive for the, uh, the Trump Legal Defense Fund. Thanks, Eric. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. 
please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.